Well, I find myself in the very unenviable position of having followed those three very eloquent, very passionate, very forthright speakers. Um, Kate, I did want to say at the outset that uh, I appreciated your introduction of us as rock stars because I can assure you that anybody who knows what my grade was in Professor Levine's tort class my first year Hastings would never have ever described me as a legal rock star. So. I really want to thank Hastings and the, and the students who have put this together. I'm very grateful to you. It's a wonderful dialogue, a wonderful discussion, the panels, the speakers that you presented here today. Uh, I want to be very forthright and say that I'm here to be the contrarian, and I recognize that and I embrace that. However, I think of myself as a progressive prosecutor as well. My definition may be different, but I see my role in very much the same way. I get up every day and try to make the criminal justice system a better place, a more just place, a more fair place for everybody in this country recognizing that it's not perfect, but we can work together to make it better in those ways. When I hire new lawyers and they come into my office, I sit down with them, I spend 10 or 15 minutes with them, and I sort of explain, these are my rules of the road, because you are acting in my name as the United States Attorney, when you're in court and when you're filing briefs with the court. And the number one rule that I tell them and I repeat it on a recurring basis is, we are here to do the right thing for the right reasons. And that is the mantra and the theme of what we do every day in the United States Attorney's Office. I'm gonna agree with Chesa right out of the box. We need more mental health treatment. We need more drug treatment. I have been a prosecutor on and off for the better part of 30 years. And this drug thing is destroying this country. And we have got to do a better job of getting treatment to people who genuinely want it. We have got to do a better job of providing mental treatment to those who need it and will do it. The problem on the prosecutor's side is all too often that mentally ill person does something, harms someone, and then it lands on our desk. And our job is to protect the community, as I'm going to talk about here in just a minute and not necessarily that individual. In the United States Attorney's Office, we fully support the three re-entry courts, which are in existence in our district, one in Sacramento, one in Fresno, one in Bakersfield. And in addition to that, we have not, the, the Bureau of Prisons, Federal Bureau of Prisons, has what they call regional relocation centers. Halfway houses is what they are, so that people can get out of prisons earlier and live at a halfway house. We have not had one in, San, in Sacramento in 25 years because of the NIMBY thing. Right now, I am working directly hand-in-hand -hand with an African-American member of the Sacramento City Council to site a halfway house in Sacramento because we have got to do a better job of rehabilitating and helping people to transition back into society so they just don't become another statistic on the recidivism. So I see myself as a progressive prosecutor. We also fully support what we refer to as the better choices courts, which are people who are, it's pre-conviction, pre-trial, but they're out, and we help them to have more structure around their lives so they don't commit further crimes and do other things while they're out of custody. We also support a mental health, a mental health court in Fresno. We support the Veterans Court in Fresno. 
another aspect of what I believe to be a progressive prosecutor, under my definition, is to very actively reach out to historically underprivileged communities in our district. And I have been to more mosques, synagogues, and temples than I can count in the last two years, extending the hand of friendship, cooperation, and understanding to those communities. My office sponsors what we refer to as the Hate Crimes Task Force, which was established in 1999. Some of you may remember, 1999 is referred to in Sacramento as the Summer of Hate. There were two white brothers by the name of Williams who committed arsons in three Jewish synagogues and a women's reproductive clinic and then executed, and I don't use that word lightly, a homosexual couple in their bed in the middle of the night in my county, Shasta County, where I was the elected DA. Out of that came the Hate Crimes Task Force, which my office sponsors to this day. And once a quarter, we bring all those groups together and we talk about issues. In fact, we had one just last week talking about school shootings and what can we do to work better. So we are, we are progressive in that way. We very actively reach out into the community to try to educate on opioids, the number one cause of death in the United States. Over 70,000 Americans over the last several years dead because of opioids. We also are very actively going into the schools to work with parents and students to protect young people on the internet because there is a whole world of internet sexual exploitation of children that's going on out there that would just shock you if we talked about some of the details around those cases. All of that having been said, I respectfully disagree with much of what is being advocated by the what is widely viewed as the progressive prosecution movement in the country for four reasons. Number one, in many ways it usurps the constitutional role of the legislative branch of government. Two, there's a fundamental misunderstanding of the role of the county prosecutor. Three, many times in jurisdictions with progressive prosecutors, the violent crime rates have gone up. And four, all too often, victims are forgotten. John Adams famously said, we have a government of laws, not of men. All too often today, in many of these jurisdictions, we have inverted that phrase, and now we have a government of men and women, and not a government of laws. Let's go back to the basics. We have three branches of government. The legislature legislates, the judiciary interprets, and the executive enforces. So when prosecutors at the county level publicly announce that they are going to cease prosecuting entire categories of crimes, they have usurped the role of the legislature. And that is frankly not a good idea for the long term, uh, term of this country because next time there may be somebody else who comes into that office and flips it right back again. And it's not good for the long term health of the nation. If you want to change the law, run for the state legislature or advocate within the state legislature, don't run for DA. There is a fundamental misunderstanding, and let me be very upfront about this. The district attorney does not represent the defendant. From the California district attorney's website, I read this. The primary role of the district attorney is to prosecute the community he or is to protect. 
uh, prosecutor, is to protect the community he or she is elected to serve. District attorneys represent the public and endeavor to improve public safety by prosecuting those who threaten the well-being of the community and its citizens by breaking the law. Ultimately, a DA strives to improve the community he or she represents by making it a better place to live for everyone. That is why in the state courts of California, criminal cases are captioned the people of the state of California versus the defendant. In Maryland, they're called the state of Maryland versus the defendant. In Massachusetts, they're called the Commonwealth of Massachusetts versus the defendant. The elected prosecutor represents the state and the community against the defendant. He or she does not represent the defendant. That person has his or her own lawyer. As a career prosecutor, I believe strongly and encourage that we have competent, able, ethical defense attorneys, well-funded public defender's offices, because that's the way the system is supposed to work. Any prosecutor worth his salt wants a good, strong defense attorney on the other side. That's how it should work. Third, violent crime goes up. The past two years, there has been a general decline in the homicide rate across the United States. In Philadelphia, in 2018, the first year of Mr. Krasner's term as district attorney, homicides went up 11% to the highest rate in more than a decade. In 2019, they were up again. And as of this morning, year to date over 2019, they are up again another 26%. In Baltimore, homicides have risen yearly since 2015. In 2019, the highest number of per capita murders in Baltimore's history took place. In a 24-hour period in January of this year, there were eight separate shootings with 12 people wounded and five people dead in Baltimore. Four, victims are all too often forgotten. There are any number of instances where violent criminal defendants have been given sweetheart deals by progressive prosecutors and the victims have been a complete afterthought. One thing we need to remember is that when violent crime rates go up, the victims of those crimes are overwhelmingly minority communities. In Philadelphia in 2018, 92% of those homicide victims I talked about were either African American or Hispanic. In Baltimore in 2018, 93% of homicide victims were African American. These policies all too often result in increased victimization of minority communities. Is that really what we want? Thank you for this opportunity to be here with you today. I look forward to a meaningful dialogue with my co-panelists, and I will answer to the name Darth Vader here today. <laughs> remarks many many key issues uh, on which I hope we will focus I'd actually like to begin with a question about how your offices measure success and I mean that both office-wide when is it that your office has succeeded and also for an individual prosecutor in terms of their promotion or retention 
when has your office succeeded office-wide, when in terms of a particular prosecutor, and is winning part of that measure of success? And if so, what does winning mean? So that's my initial question. And before I turn that over to our panelists to address, I do want to remind anyone, if you have not filled out the small card about the most pressing issue for prosecutors today, please do it right away. And if you have questions you'd like to address the uh, panel or have addressed the panel, please fill out the large cards. All right, without further ado, okay, how do you measure success? Uh, I want to comment on something else. <laughs> as, a person, as a person who is actually elected to do my job and not appointed um, to do my job, um, and I will say as one of less than 1% of actual people with melanin that are in this role, I'm really tired um, as a person who's been at the U.S. Attorney's Office as well, when U.S. attorneys who like hover up here in the good air, right, talking about the communities that they only touch with Project Safe Neighborhoods or other things, there's no diversity in these offices, number one, usually, certainly in Massachusetts, uh, where I serve. And um, what I can say is just defendants are part of the community, which I think... I think uh, what I find fascinating is people that have actually tried criminal cases in state courts or local uh, jurisdictions know that defendants are witnesses to crimes and victims of crimes as well, figuratively or literally. And when we treat them like trash when they're defendants and wonder why their family members who all know this uh, don't want to come forward or help, these are our potential jurors. And I, you know, find it just, I can't sit here, as my mom raised me and say, I really don't have much um, time for more white men telling me what communities of color do. Because they don't know. So I'm a white man and I want to weigh in too. <laughs> Briefly. So, I uh, worked as a deputy district attorney and elected district attorney. I've tried over 100 jury trials in the state courts of California, and I've dealt with victims and I've dealt with defendants. So, I don't breathe the rarefied air of the United States Attorney's Office because my foundation in this work was in that area. So, thank you. So, so at the risk of piling on, I was actually going to go right to Greg's history as the elected DA. But I know that Greg does have the experience that, that many of us have um, of working in state courts. But I think it's important to remember, and this engages with another one of the points that Greg made about, I think he described it as usurping the role of the legislative branch. The California District Attorneys Association, of which I'm a part, and which Greg was a part when he was an elected district attorney, regularly lobbies for law changes, effectively prevents criminal justice reforms at the legislative level, and even once those laws pass, fights to undermine them. Yes. Yeah. measure our success. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important, as Greg said, to focus on public safety. But as Rachel said, the public that we are to protect is not limited to certain people in certain procedural postures in a case. And I can tell you as a public defender, for many years, representing thousands of clients, 
Virtually every single person that I represented had themselves been a victim of a crime at some point in their life. And, and that doesn't mean, I want to be very clear, that doesn't mean that it's a legal excuse for what they did or that we don't have accountability for what they did in the case where they're a defendant. But what it does mean is, if we're serious about public safety, we have to recognize that we failed to protect those people in the first place. And the more we can do to break the cycle of incarceration, to address the racial disparities that drive so much inequity in our society, to address the root causes of crime, to heal and not simply punish, the safer we will all be. And I will simply add, I mean, having um, dealt with the same sort of, and I'll just quote you, is rhetoric that was just put out um, with reference to violent crime and this idea of criminal justice reform, where there is no sh like correlation at all. You used an example for, of Baltimore. Um, you're not from Baltimore, so I, I, I would advise you to please, before you make any mention of what happens in my city, to know what you're talking about. I have, let me just, since you are so astute, um, I have worked with five police commissioners in three years, three mayoral administrations, including a mayor that is awaiting federal sentencing. <laughs> I have, in the five years that I've been in office and attempted police accountability from the uprising and the untimely death of Freddie Gray, right? to the 183-page report of the Department of Justice that came in and exposed the pattern and practice of discriminatory enforcement of one of the largest police organizations in the country, to the full implementation of body-worn cameras on officers where they were reenacting the discovery and seizure of evidence and not placing it in their statement of probable cause, to having to play cleanup to one of the largest police corruption scandals in the history of the country where my office was assigned and had to assess thousands of cases of corrupt police officers where they were not only going and planting guns and drugs on individuals but redistributing guns and drugs on the streets of Baltimore. So before you talk and draw any sort of correlation to criminal justice reform or to sit up here and to say that we are somehow usurping legislators. You, understanding that you are a prosecutor and the awesome discretion that comes with it, should understand that if you are a truly progressive prosecutor, as you've noted, a progressive prosecutor or a progressive person is a person advocating for implementation of social reform or new liberal ideas. We are moving away from the rhetoric of the tough on crime approach, the war on drugs, stop and frisk, zero tolerance policing, and winning at all costs, which has led to mass incarceration and the over-criminalization of poor black and brown people. I will continue. When it came to the legislating and going beyond, as you've put it, usurping legislators, it was I who came out and said, I will not prosecute marijuana possession. Why? Because it's, there's no public safety value in doing it, for one. Two, it's counterproductive to the limited resources that we have in Baltimore City. If you're so familiar with Baltimore, you would understand that in 2018, we had a 26% 20 
clearance rate, homicide clearance rate. That means we're solving one out of four cases. So to have people still prosecuting low levels of marijuana where you're going into court, you're processing them in court, you're signing overtime slips, you're preparing and doing CDS analysis for marijuana, that doesn't make sense. And I'm going to tell you, I will do it again, the most problematic issue for me, and the reason why I guess I've usurped the legislators in making that determination, as they're moving towards the legalization of marijuana in the state of marijuana, I mean in the state of marijuana, <laughs> making millions of dollars at this point, Yet they still want to di di discriminate against poor black and brown people. The numbers do not matter. And when you look at the statistics, and this is something that as a prosecutor you should understand and appreciate, is that when we already knew that black people were, were four times more likely to be arrested for mere possession of marijuana, even though there is no disparate use in marijuana consumption. In the city of Baltimore, you were six times more likely to be arrested for possession of marijuana. We understand and recognize the collateral consequences with, that come with that. But even after the decriminalization of 10 grams or less, where the officers are now assigned to give a citation, what we saw in the city of Baltimore was that in 2015, 89% of those citations were issued to black people. 2016, 94% were issued to black people. 2017, 95% were issued to black people. And the most problematic statistic, and was ultimately the reason why I said I will never be complicit in discriminatory enforcement against laws against poor black and brown people, is because 42% of the citations that they were issuing went to one out of nine police districts. Which district do you think that was? The one where the uprising took place, which was in the Western District, which happens to be 95% black and disproportionately impoverished. We have a role, we have an obligation to pursue justice, and that is inclusive of the defendant. Look it up. my first year, so do we win? to that as well. I can't follow, even pretend to follow Maryland, but I, I do think that she started a conversation about data, and it's really important part of how we measure success. And so just to touch back on the core question, I, mean, I think the statistics that Maryland knows by heart are really important for all of us when we think about evaluating ourselves and our jurisdictions. <coughs> where are we starting? Where are we going? How do we measure that success? Conviction rates is way too narrow and oversimplified, right? It's one metric among many, but it's not how we evaluate individual attorneys. It's not how we evaluate ourselves as an office primarily. Right? It's about doing justice and it's about making the city safer. So I want to go back to one of the things that Greg mentioned about crime rates. In San Francisco today, after nearly a decade under progressive reformer D.A. George Gaston, homicide rates are at their lowest since 1961. Right. Violent crime rates are falling across the board. Property crime rates have fallen two years running. So we are actually moving in the right direction and we're doing it in a way that's more humane, more effective, more resource savvy, and ultimately more victim-centered. Because we have dramatically expanded 
in the last 10 years, our victim services unit, doing what no tough-on-crime prosecutor ever bothered to even think about doing. And we're not doing it primarily with city funds or state funds. We're doing it through grant money because we have a system where people conflate justice and victims' rights with punishment. There may be some overlap in some cases, but they are very different things, just like accountability and punishment have overlapped, but are very different things. We need to heal victims, we need to put victims first, and we also need to make sure that the 99.9% .9 of people who come into our jails that will get released at some point in their life, get released, set up for success, not set up to fail. And so when I read two nights ago that the county jail number four that needs to be closed didn't have any heat on a very cold night in San Francisco. When I heard members of the Board of Supervisors reaching out and saying that people on, in the jail were freezing and didn't have heat or blankets. When I heard in, in the newspaper a week ago that the city's paying $2.3 million to settle a lawsuit because of open sewage in the county jail, I measure our success and I say we're not living up to our values. I say we need to do better by everybody. 90% of those people are presumed innocent. And we need to do better by the people, all of the people, even the people that we're going to send to prison.